Chris, this will be your chance to air all of your serverless gripes. Let's do it. Josh Proto, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, I'm so happy to be on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. You are someone who hosts your own podcast, Talking Serverless, which is how we first got to know each other. I've been a two-time guest there, which has been a lot of fun. You also work and I think are a co-founder for Serverless Guru. And if you want to talk a little bit about what that is and then kind of your background and how you got into serverless, we'd love to hear that story. For sure. No, definitely. And, you know, right now, you know, I am the chief operating officer of Serverless Guru. Probably not necessarily, depends how you would define co-founder. Not in like the, probably the original sense. I think Ryan is sort of like the single founder, but as far as like, who's the veteran that still knows everything that's, most everything that's gone on, that's definitely me. Because I joined on early 2019, originally helping Ryan and helping Serverless Guru. I think define itself in the marketplace as far as, you know, we're a consultancy that provides serverless first cloud infrastructure and cloud service consulting. And I remember when I first met Ryan, he was like, I'm doing this thing and it's getting a lot of traction, but um, uh, no one knows about us. And uh, I don't know how to solve that problem. And uh, as someone who had recently come from a long career in education and retooled myself from marketing communication, I was like, oh, I am exactly the right person for this. And that was when I really started to, I'd say, delve into the industry of like, what is serverless? What is, I knew about cloud. I knew about AWS beforehand. Predominantly, we're working with AWS when we're in AWS and AWS Lambda, those sort of services when I'm talking about serverless at Serverless Guru. But that was my my first inoculation, I would say, into the industry. And it's been just a fantastic ride the entire time. Couldn't be happier with my choice. Yeah, that's very cool. And you're a career switcher like I am. And you also have an education background. So I'd be curious why you kind of decided to make the switch and then how you approach that if you were a boot camp student, uh, kind of self-learner, or how you approach making that switch. Sure, sure. So one thing I always am like really fascinated by in people's stories and also like my story in a way of self-reflection is, you know, what are the things that stay the same as as our lives change, as we grow older, as we switch careers? And for me, I've always been very, very people focused and very experience focused. And so if there's one thing I learned in, in education and I was in personalized education, so I was tutoring children and adults that were non-traditional students. So maybe there is a learning difference, ADD, ADHD, or they're just coming back to school after maybe like 20, 30 years of not being in school. I had this challenge of I need to architect a situation to where learning happens, which is really, really complex because I'm a biochemist by trade. I had my own chemical company for a while. And so I know about a little bit to be dangerous in terms of how memories are formed on like a biochemical level. And so understanding there's that aspect, very granular, compared to the process, the human process of we're talking, here's a picture, this is this is a circle, this is the area and circumference of a circle. How do we get someone to actually memorize that uh, and to learn it and be able to teach it to someone else? I had just spent five years becoming very comfortable with that process. And I actually was re- retooling myself to be a game designer because it's something I always played around with in college and coding in like C Sharp on Unity and doing some JavaScript development and made like some iOS games for me and my friends with Swift. That was always really, really fun. And so I was thinking of doing that, but I was reading this design principle 
principles book and I kind of realized that, oh, I could apply these these design principles to sort of anything. And that's what made me really excited. And I was playing around with Alexa skills and building like, I'm a big D&D nerd a little bit. I had like a campaign that was running for like 11 months, which seems like a unicorn as far as campaigns that actually continue to run. In that time, I was building some Alexa skills and working with AWS and in the Portland community to scratch that itch. And those skills, I think, gave me the foundation for when I met Ryan and we were talking about stuff. I'm like, I know enough to sort of talk about this and to figure out, you know, what does the market want to talk about? What excites the market? What excites the participants in this area? And uh, let's start some conversations because there's one thing I found is that there's a tremendous amount of innovation and value that happens when people get together and talk and figure out, well, this is what interests me, what interests you and sort of like what we're doing right here. And it's all about that, that human business is human to human. And so being able to unlock those human skills, I think, was like a big opportunity I saw within the serverless industry. Totally. Yeah, I bet you probably went down the rabbit hole of spaced repetition and all that kind of stuff when it comes to like learning. It's about like, how do you optimize your actual learning time and what it takes to actually like internalize something to, to fully learn it. So it's, it's so useful to have those kind of like prerequisite skills when you want to learn anything, especially coding and, and all that sort of stuff. And then you are someone who hosts a podcast like I am. So I'm always curious to hear about like, what exactly drew you to podcasting like as a medium and how that interfaces with your business and where you think kind of the value comes in. Totally. I will I'll definitely answer that. And I just remembered the uh, first part of the first question you asked was like, if there's any like uh, tips I would give to someone who is like a code school graduate or someone like that. So to answer that part first, I would say, I think there's a lot of value to having a growth mindset in how you think about problems. And I think about your own skill set, because there's always going to be someone who is, you know, done it longer. But the fact that you can maybe see things with a new mind or can cross-functionally apply skills from a different discipline into the new discipline you're going into, that's incredibly valuable. And there, there's like some talent discovery that I think can becomes really, really valuable that industries may be unaware that they have. Now, as far as what inspired me to do podcasts, I think it really ended up happening, what was it, sort of like in March of 20, March of 2020. COVID lockdown had recently just happened in Oregon. Ryan and I were just watching everything happen. And I would say we were still running into a problem or seeing a problem within the marketplace of the serverless marketplace, which was there were still a lot of people who were asking us to describe what is serverless or how is it useful? Or like, I'm not quite sure that there is real value here. Ryan had been in the weeds of this building applications, solving these problems for companies where there clearly is like, it is very beneficial for these situations. And we wanted to be able to A, have a platform for describing that, getting that information out there, as well as engaging with other people we knew that are also doing that and sort of like be a different voice within like an echo chamber of either like, serverless isn't hitting the mark or you know they still use servers so like how does it call itself serverless and it's like well you know wireless internet still there's still a wire someplace like my house still has electrical wiring that's just like a funny thing that, that i always see but i think also like my background in education is like also wanted me to do it because i wanted to lean into a lot of our strengths which i think is like we'll sit down with you and we'll teach your team we'll teach you more about serverless less less so me nowadays than at like a very granular level but as far as like building frameworks for how can we teach something like serverless, that's something I was really interested in solving. And I think problems not solved, market's still very early, but we're in the process of doing that. I ran serverless functions early on in my company's history. We actually started with serverless functions, actually wrapped in serverless framework 
by themselves, so straight to AWS. This must be early on. I say earlier on, like it's so long ago, a year and a half ago, maybe even two at this point. But I found them to be very, I wouldn't say lacklustering, but very much I didn't understand the problem they were solving before I tried to use them. At that point, I'd never span up an actual server, configured Nginx, configured a runtime such as Docker or PM2. The next stage of that was Vercel functions and Netlify functions, an abstracted layer of AWS. And then finally, I moved on to a full server full hosting, PM2 on an Ubuntu droplet. So I've really seen the whole scale of services at this point. The only side I've not seen is obviously complete scale to 20,000 servers, but I'm not that experienced or my company's not that big enough to have that problem yet. But my biggest question with serverless is how far do you think it's got left to go? Like, for example, if we were searching for gold, have we hit the gold rush yet with serverless? I really like your question a lot because I recently read an article by uh, Mark Hinkle called like, has serverless jumped the shark? And they're sort of talking about like, I kind of liked it because I think last year I was reading articles why like serverless isn't like hitting the mark. And ultimately this one was saying that like, actually serverless is like doing pretty well in the sense that it's getting people to think about event-driven architecture and is allowing developers to spend less time on like infrastructure configuration, which I think is very useful once we get there. Interesting thing is that they talked about how... Uh, as far as like how trendy is serverless right now, it's actually dipping. People aren't talking about it as much. It's sort of like an old, old hat sort of thing, as my grandmother would say. I think there's a lot more gold. Like the value proposition of serverless, we may really understand that now. Or we've been able to figure out like these are the use cases where serverless makes sense. You don't want to have one Lambda function supporting like your entire monorepo, or if you're handling like 300,000 requests a minute, maybe don't put that under one Lambda function. But there are instances where it makes sense and it can really increase the velocity of your team. We probably understand that now. Now it becomes a problem of implementing it, being able to implement it when it is a correct use case. Because I'm also spoiled. I never had to, I've never had to configure a server or do anything with networking and one of the people on my team, absolutely brilliant, they're telling me about how, you know, well, the last time when I was a consultant, we had our own servers and I had to move wires around and like make sure they weren't overheating. And it's like, wow, I would never have thought that that would be like a role as like an engineer or a tech consultant to actually have to, you know, do some plumbing, do some electrical engineering in that sort of way. So I think that we have found the gold veins. We found the veins. Now we just have to mine it. We know how to find it. And now we just need to, uh, put in the labor to actually uh, extract the value. I, I've got, I guess, two contradicting point of views to really ask and hear your thoughts against. And this is even controversial for me, uh, so don't worry. You will see why. The first one is Marco Armen. He's a developer. He makes Overcast, the podcasting app. And he says he runs three PHP servers. He wrote them in PHP because he knew PHP. And he said, they're a hassle to get going, but once you get them going, you just leave them forever and they just sit there, carry on ticking, everything is good. Opposite of the whole conversation was, I think, Snipcart, who did a conference talk where they was like, we used to be server for, and then we just clicked a finger and now we're all serverless and look at us. The point there is, I think that, and it comes down to the, the biggest gripe I see and have felt with serverless is 
cold starts. Are they manageable at this point? Snipcart is a successful company. So if they was going to flick over to serverless functions today, each serverless function would get thousands of hits a minute. So cold starts wouldn't be a problem to them. But then if you're a tiny startup where cold starts would literally slow down your app to a point where the service would seem really slow, even though you're just trying to, you're just trying to grow, man. You know, you're just trying to grow and you're just trying to get more customers. So what do you think the balance is? Do you think cold starts will be this problem that slowly keeps fading away? Do you think we should use hacks like a cold start, like pusher to always keep the function hot? I'm all open for it because I would love to know the answer. I'll do my best to give an answer. And that is, I think there's a whole realm of use cases that probably me and like serverless guru doesn't have the largest grapple of, which is if you're like a single founder or you're building like a very, very small application. Because at least that isn't the work that we're doing like day in and day out. We're usually enterprise production workloads. Like, oh, you're an international company and have like 50,000 people a minute doing something. Oh, let's build a solution for you. You know, Fortune 100 plus, that's like where we sort of sit. That being said, I think everyone, at least, you know, the promise of serverless is everyone gets to benefit from the pay for uses model. And and I will say with AWS's release of like provision concurrency, I think last year, I really haven't heard cold starts in practice being something. You should dig into what that is, the provision concurrency, because that's kind of a more niche thing in this realm that our listeners may not know. What is a cold start? as simply as possible. Sure. So there is, gosh, let me see. I haven't taught on this one in a second. When you are trying to execute your business logic using a Lambda function, the function will take some time in order to be active or the instance of where the Lambda function is being held will take some time to sort of be active. So although like a normal request with your server can happen very, very quickly, I forget. Like if it's like a 50 millisecond or less than 10 millisecond, that will usually happen. And different um, programming languages will say like they're optimized best for within within the context of... AWS Lambda. So it's like, you know, if you're using Java, it's going to take longer than if you're using like Node and JavaScript or something. So that's always something to sort of think about or something we think about because at scale, because if you have, you know, a humongous code base that is pulling tons of requests, those differences in milliseconds eventually can add up. And I know, I know in the beginning, like what was happening was that in order to get around like a cold start, cold start issue of where there's this huge gap between when the function's code actually is available to execute and then there's that small moment of execution. You would have like warming functions, or I think what you were just describing, Chris, where it was just sort of like ping that instance just to keep that code active. So you wouldn't run into a situation where you're trying to pull a request or go to a next page on a website or buy something. And then it would take, who knows how, like it would take an incredibly long amount of time. I think Google has done a bunch of research where how long is too long for something to load on the internet? Several years ago, that was 10 seconds. If it was 10 seconds or more, you might as well just not have a website because the drop-off was like 96%, which is, you know, functionally no one actually standing around for that. Gosh, I would say, you know, AWS has really good documentation now and like provision concurrency. One of our team members, Vishnu, just did a really fantastic talk on uh, load testing for uh, AWS Lambda and really pulls into, I think, the granular details of we had a goal of like, we want to break AWS Lambda with like requests and like, how long does it take to start? And then how many can they process before it shuts off? And how can we play with the different dials like provision concurrency, which high level, I'll sort of describe it as you can pre-tell your Lambda function to be ready for X amount of requests or provision, X amount of availability. I believe there's also something really interesting. We were just talking about it. Edge 
AWS Edge, where you can distribute. You can distribute your, maybe that may be a more regional thing. I'll have to get back to that one. Upfront just added functions. That might be what you're thinking of. It was Lambda Edge that you're thinking about. Yeah, I'm definitely thinking of Lambda Edge. If I remember rightly, when you set up Lambda, you say run in EU West 2. But then when you use Lambda Edge, you say just run in their closest center. Exactly. So you are able to get even marginally more beneficial and useful runtimes, which is very, very great if you're running huge, huge volumes. So I think the fact that we're now able to do that rather than just like I know one of the reasons why I think why Serverless Guru is in Portland and AWS is and Amazon is like located in Seattle is because we have like a huge regional data center for Amazon. And so we get very low latency. We get very fast compute time, which is great. But there are certain places you can look at the map that isn't possible. But things like Lambda Edge, provisioning concurrency, provisioning time and resources and memory for your Lambda functions just to stay awake. We are seeing that like an enterprise level, this is definitely fixing it. This is definitely making it easier to extract the value. I think then there becomes interesting conversations around monitoring and tracing around like making sure that the things that you spin up aren't just costing you a lot of money or costing unexpected money. And that's like an interesting, I wouldn't say problem, but it's an interesting situation that I'd say is another level this is an interesting level that comes after that well yeah this is like Corey quinn who does the last week in aws and the screaming in the cloud podcast he has an entire business based around just optimizing your aws bill he calls himself a cloud economist which is like a job that literally did not even exist 10 years ago because people are spending so much money on this stuff and it's so complex and they have all these different things in all these different places. And what I usually hear is that the only way to actually get visibility into all of it is to look at your bill. That is the only place in the entire AWS console where it's all consolidated into one place. I was trying to remember exactly what I was reading last year, but I was doing a lot of a lot of research and reading a bunch of the AWS Lambda case studies. And I was reading a lot about one of the future roles that will exist is basically like this cloud economist, like with things like AWS Lambda, we'll be able to like assign like a monetary value to like our functions. And it's like, how much money does this function actually save us? How much money does this function cost us? What is the true value of this code? And that's like a really interesting thing to me to learn how to figure out and start calculating internally we've done some calculations like that with clients and like what's the monetary not like there's a raw dollar value of like how much you're saving if you're switching from servers to just like paper compute time you know you'll save like maybe like 120 hours of just your server always being on so there's that cost but there's also like a productivity gain if there is something that was breaking and it's like wow because we have this working function it's saving x amount of dollars and that's like a really interesting place to be able to break down to further the question on cold starts Let's take the really simple example. We're going to do a hello world request back. We're thinking in JavaScript here. Serverless is far more than JavaScript, but we're going to go complex as we're starting with TypeScript. Before you've even sent your hello world in TypeScript to AWS to compile, you're then compiling it down to ES5. I believe they do include ES6 now as in transpilation. And then that hello world function sits on AWS as a server. They give you a URL for that. Do correct me if I'm wrong. This is all my knowledge since I last looked at it. So then when you ping that URL, you will get your function back saying hello world. The first time you ping it, you could get a one second delay. That's the cold start as we spoke about. And then every other time it's that 50 millisecond. You leave it five minutes, 10 minutes, and then you do it again. You're going to hit the cold start, obviously, a second time. 
But my next question, the greatest question of all time, do your lambdas significantly slow down faster than an always online server, the more complicated a function becomes? So say you're going to run the same JavaScript logic. So you say you're importing five modules of various complexities into a serverless function versus just run that function on an always online server. Obviously, we're not talking about this server's got an eight core CPU and this serverless function has 200 megabytes of RAM. Let's treat them as equals. Would you say the performance would be the same? Assuming the same amount of memory usage between if it was running on a server and Lambda? Yeah, does the size of the function itself impact cold start? I believe it does. This is a great, this is a fantastic question because it's something I haven't particularly thought about, but I have definitely seen that size of the function and also potential complexity matters. And I think there's also new ways as far as like, I'm thinking about the work that I've done with configuring deployments. Like how do I package all my code? Uh, my infrastructure is code. So it will actually launch my application and then work with then CICD or continuous integration and deployment is it's a different part of that. But thinking about like the ways that in the past that we've sort of optimized that and have sort of had to uglify it and break out, what is it, break out it into small chunks, into small pieces. So you're not just trying to ram it all the way through. So I'm thinking there definitely has to be some level of, you know, the size of what you're trying to do and potentially breaking into smaller chunks is there is going to be a place where you start to get diminishing speed if you're trying to force it all the way through. Yeah, this is a, a really big thing that Brian LaRue is like constantly banging the drum on and, and he's done, I think, fairly vigorous research on this in terms of actually correlating cold start times with the size of your functions. And they recommend you you want to keep them under like five megabytes. And when you're uploading them to things like Netlify or Vercel and probably AWS as well, there's actually a literal size where they'll just tell you, no, we're not going to take this. I think maybe like 50 megabytes or, or somewhere around there. And so I know this has happened to certain people with their Redwood apps, if they're trying to bundle too many dependencies in there with it. This is where the term Lambda Lith comes into the, the conversation, because if you are going to build your entire application as something hosted on a single Lambda, the chances that it will be useful at all and not clear that budget size limit is like very, very small. So we have kind of trapped ourselves into this unworkable architecture to a certain degree. And this is something that I've been thinking about for like a while now, just because as Chris and others have, have hit these sort of issues with serverless functions, I eventually realized like, well, obviously like this, because we're not doing it right, you know, and, and plenty of people in the serverless world have been saying this forever, if anyone would pay attention. So I think it's like a known problem, but not necessarily an understood problem because there's not a lot of great just like information about this, but they did put out a, a guide recently. I think it might be the team behind the service application model. I know that they, they do a lot of education work. And so there's like a, an anti-patterns guide that we'll, we'll link to in the show notes. And the very first anti-pattern is the, the Lambda Lith. And so I'm curious, you see lots and lots of these projects and you're consulting for lots of people are people building Lambda lists? Do they know that they shouldn't be? Like, how, how is the kind of like knowledge of this as a problem in the area? When I started about a year ago, we, we got a lot of people coming up to us being like, ah, oh, you use AWS Lambda? That doesn't work. 
And it's like, oh, interesting. Like, what happened? And they're like, well, we just tried to put our entire monolith into Lambda and it didn't work. That's like the extreme example. That's like, I think, you know, as Lambda lithic as, as you can get. There have been instances where because of certain client requirements, there's like the technology, there's like an element of the technology. And so it's like infinite time and infinite money and infinite people, we can have an optimized technological process. But whenever those other two variables are not infinite, sometimes concessions are made or it's not as much about the technology. I think one of our roles that we have as consultants at Serverless Guru is A, always advocating for the technology and the technology best practices. Because where we're seeing a lot of breakdown is exactly what you said and not necessarily having an understanding like, oh, the sizes of my functions do matter. And it's really awesome to have people like Brian, like I love Brian. I know Brian's talked to him a couple of times, I think, on the Talking Serverless podcast. And like being a place where he is, getting to see where things break like that getting to see the data around that is just a fantastic place to be because then you can even optimize your own products and optimize your own, um, even like your own services, which is really fantastic. I was just going to bring in the point where you say this doesn't work. The main reason I think 99% of people believe that they're in their, in their, in their company, they go, yep, we've got an express server, express server five years ago, been working fine. Our API is express. And then they open the first example of serverless framework that's as Lambda Express. They go, okay, easy PC, copy, paste, Lambda function now runs Express app with every single route that's in it. And then they go, it's very slow because it's a completely different experience. They're expecting the function to then do root management between a hundred functions and then run the function. What is the best thing to do is it have like one Lambda function per function, if possible? Is it better to have 10 functions on a Lambda, you know, but never go over 50? What would you say the most effective way without being too hard in terms of DevOps to distribute your, say, express application that you said serverless won't work for onto a serverless system? I think a good rule of thumb is definitely more along the lines of like one function per Lambda or like one one executable or one like, what is it? Saying like one goal per Lambda. Single responsibility principle if you want to get computery science about it. Thank you, Anthony. That's perfect because I don't have a computer. I don't have like a traditional computer science background. So that's super helpful. I would say something like that. And I think that's where it really shines is if you start to add too many things into the Lambda, too many functions, then you're not able to, I think, get like the true benefit from it. Like if it's coupled to, if it's not D, like there, I think decoupling the functionality per Lambda function, there is some value to that. Having that single, what is it? Single responsibility. Single responsibility. And I think that's definitely where the Lambda functions are shining. And I also think there's like an element of, it's hard out in the field when you're doing this because there are situations, like you said, where there's this company that, you know, they've had this Express server for a while and they're like, oh, I can do Express and Lambda. And maybe if you can, that doesn't mean it's the most optimal way. And like in an ideal scenario, it's like we should just greenfield this and then, you know, you should be using Lambda and API Gateway and using a couple other things within the ecosystem of AWS rather than trying to use this technology that yes, it does work. Yes, it is compatible. It's compatible, but in that word of being compatible or saying that it's supported, it doesn't mean that it would support like a multi-year 
project with all of the problems and all of the use cases and edge cases that may end up happening. It's very much that thing of like, if you look at all the use cases, it doesn't say Coca-Cola smacked their, you know, serverless application onto Lambda and it just worked. No, it's very distinct flows of like the Sunday Times uploaded an image that a Lambda function ran to make it for mobile, a mobile image. Like it's very like distinct things. And then my final question regarding this, a lot of services we're seeing right now, things like the current ecosystem, they tend to say, yep, serverless is the first default option, but then bundle it into this like, yeah, all they're doing behind the scenes is making it an express app that then gets bundled into Lambdas. So how can necessary framework providers take the other approach to say, no, we're not just going to make an express app under the scenes. We're going to go single function per Lambda. Would that take a lot of work, a lot of restructuring and reorganizing? Because I believe even Next does that by default with their API folder is they're just making Lambda express, like the abstracted layer, if that makes sense. It's just they're abstracting it into an express server. Oh, interesting. So you're saying that the abstraction isn't necessarily like a pure level of serverless, or the abstraction isn't using maybe like the best practice? Yeah, I definitely think some of them, I'm not going to name names in case I'm wrong. Of course, I already am thinking of stuff and I'm not going to name names either. But this is that's a very fantastic question. I love it. Yeah, so some of them just abstract it into an express server, making it a monolith. Because the, the biggest thing I see this is not against any company or any framework or anything. They start with, yep, we've tested serverless functions. They work great. We've wrote five hello worlds in different situations. Yep, we've tested everything. And then companies use them. And then they obviously want to put 50 functions on it. Things start to slow down. Things don't work like they did when it was empty. You know, the promise of speed and organization, it, it gets really hard. How do we get back to the core principles of serverless and to make sure we're using it in the correct light as what it was meant for? For that last part, I think like, how do we make sure we're using it correctly? How do I make sure that I'm able to bench like 250 now and 300 later? I can't, I haven't benched that much in a long time, but it's sort of like, I used to be a power lifter for a little bit, but it's like, how do you do that? Like with anything, it's like discipline. It's kind of like a, a funny thing where, the technology is so is more advanced and it allows for you to do so much, but only if you really fully adopt it and sort of marry yourself a little bit to the process. Part of, I think, solving that problem is like you have to be really committed to like like having very solid foundations, whether it's like at your team or your your organization or your framework. Like it has to be something that you work on every single day and just are always trying to constantly learn. Like, you know, someone like the consultants on our team who's, who are really in charge of like the client work. I'm not one of them as much, but we have like our channel in Slack that's getting all the AWS updates. People are always reading them and commenting and testing and tweaking things and sharing problems that are breaking down. And there are times where it's like things are breaking and we don't necessarily have a solution, but we're trying to solve it. We're definitely committed to the technologies and we're committed to the paradigm. And that's the only way that we're able to make it work. So it isn't just like, can't just like open a box and say, you know, make my organization serverless like Coca-Cola. The case study isn't like we destroyed all of our data centers globally and now we just run serverless. That isn't what happens. You know, they could probably never get board approval for that anyway. You just hit the big turn off the data centers button, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I think it looks like a Coke can and they like squish it or something. I'm not totally sure. If you want to sponsor me Coca-Cola, feel free. But um, I think you asked a really amazing question, Chris, which I really like because it's like very like business market strategies around like these abstraction layers and like, well, what happens when your abstraction layers aren't using serverless best practices? Then you really get to see at scale, like, well, how valuable are the best practices? Because maybe there's a world where really everything could run in an as like lambda off of express and it's it's all actually fine and then we're all just sort of arguing for the sake of the purity of the principle but like that's something we'll eventually see is like well who ends up winning out what are the major problems that people are willing to like pick service providers for and that's a really i think high level question that most like on an individual level people aren't thinking about maybe if you're like an executive team member making the decision of like what provider are we going to use what framework are we going to base our next five-year plan on those are the questions that they need to ask and i think a good thing to evaluate is well are they following best practices and what are the benefits and potential risks to following those or versus someone who isn't following those and that's like an important thing that i think people should you know do some research on this is a, a good segue to what i want to get into next which is these abstraction frameworks so not necessarily abstracting away the Lambda part itself, but abstracting other pieces that hook in to this type of architecture, because you had mentioned event-driven architecture back at the beginning, which is this idea that you have events coming into your system, which is an email signup or an image resizing, any of these little small single responsibility tasks, and they're contained within a single event. And the Lambda processes the event, but then it still has to be sent to a database or you need a queue to have them be processed before going to the Lambda. So there's lots of these little pieces that make up these larger applications. And we see lots of frameworks optimized for building it. Things like CDK or SAM or Amplify, which are within the bounds of AWS. And then you have things like the serverless framework, which kind of predates all of those and things like Arc as well. And then you have things that aren't even AWS specific like Terraform and Pulumi. And so we're getting to kind of more of that the infrastructure as code type stuff, which I've been talking about on this podcast for months and months and months now because I find it really interesting and, and really powerful technology. So I would be curious, I know you guys have been big into the serverless framework, but you also are aware of the entire space. So I'm curious where you think it would be good to just say like, yeah, service framework is going to do what you need, go with that versus when you might want to look at other options or when you should just home roll everything yourself. There's definitely value to using uh, using a framework. Serverless Guru, we're predominantly using serverless framework. We're also partners and like really enjoy the team over at, at Serverless Inc. We have a relationship with them, but as also as like as a consultancy, you know, our policy is always to do what's best for the client and help people solve the problems that are causing, you know, both them and their people and their organizations like real problems. And how can we help them solve that? Because of that, we've actually we've done a lot of research with uh, different frameworks that exist. We've done a lot of work with using SAM or CDK, Pulumi. We did some research, exploratory research into Pulumi last year and then a couple other ones that, that escaped my mind. But, you know, I was just on Slack like the other week and I was seeing our teams talk about like, oh, you know, they say that like these sort of languages are supported, but if we wanted to do these sort of advanced levels of what the client is wanting, that we really shouldn't use serverless framework. We should use something else. We should use SAM or we should be using serverless framework with this because this is an optimized language. So there, there are still like granular levels where you sort 
sort of maybe won't figure it out until you're trying to do large workloads or doing a lot of lifting to sort of optimize whether it's like the queuing or um, the native invocations that are happening. Let's see, I may have forgotten your full question. So let me make sure I'm answering it. Yeah, no, that, that was fine. Mostly I was just kind of curious, like how, how you think about the the different options that are available to you. And, and what I got out of that is that language is very important. They don't all support the same languages. Just because they support a language doesn't mean they may support all of those languages. Dependencies and that's, that's a really interesting thing because we've been talking about Lambda in this episode, kind of like it's just Node, but Python has been a very well-supported language for a while on lots of these. And then I think the, the enterprise demanded Java at a certain point, so everyone felt the need to, to put Java into these things, which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. You can put C-sharp in it too. We've been doing that a lot recently, just because it's a, it's a requirement and it's something that we've been having to solve for. Oh, another point I wanted to add on like the framework thing is like, it's also early. So I think the frameworks are, are at a place where it's like, the more people using the specific frameworks are going to make them, I think, better over time. And I think that's the play that like a lot of them are trying to make right now. Because the more people use it, the more it's going to break and the more it's going to get fixed with that methodology. And then something you also want to look at, which is a huge reason why we originally were really interested in serverless framework and use it is because it has like a bunch of third party plugins that you're able to, that people, the community makes and helps fix stuff. And that's like a really fantastic place to be, especially if you're a later early adopter right now, they may already, someone may have already found a problem with your application or with a certain use case and have built a plugin to fix it. And so that's really great. I'm definitely ignorant as far as the third party and like community open source support of other frameworks, but I'm sure that's, they're not the only one that does that. So that's another thing to evaluate because if you have that, just that third party contributions, then it's like, you can think to yourself, this ecosystem can grow and get better independent of me and my team working on it. And if you can scale the efficiency of a system outside of your own business and your own workable time and your own human resources, then there's like extra value, I think, in that ecosystem. They very much had the first movers advantage of getting started. So that's why so many things are, are built for it. And it's going to be really hard for, for anyone to catch up to them, I think, but not impossible. And the domain name, you know, they got the SEO, serverless.com. My final question, I think this will wrap it really well. We figured out in this episode that, back to the first question, that the gold is still in the ground and we're just starting to find it. So who will make the first move to truly expand service to its full potential? Will it be the first party services like AWS? Will it be the third party ones like Netlify and Vercel? Or would it be something like a framework like serverless.com? Hmm. I haven't done as much of a like business model comparison between like someone versus Netflix versus versus like a framework level, but I think it's going to be there. I think as far as like the cloud prov, like maybe there's a there's a world of there's like a like a new cloud provider that's just specializing just in serverless. That will be someone who is going to be promoting. But I think there is like some asymmetric motivation for people like AWS or GCP or Azure to, to really promote, you know, serverless because they also have all these clients who are paying consumption in uh, like their virtual machines. And so there's like an interesting battle, I think, going on in that sort of world that I don't really know a ton about. But I just, you know, I've been able to like, I think, smell the scent a little bit. But the short term, it's going to be either at a framework level or at like that tier layer two level. That being said, by the time someone like AWS does get around to where they're like, all right, we're done with our virtual machines. We're going to really pump serverless and really want to uh, encourage that. It's going to behoove people like us who are interested in 
technology and interested in serverless now to understand like what are the patterns, what are the uh, best practices? Because once they turn the switch, then there's going to be an even higher deluge of organizations and individuals who are looking to implement it. And I think that's something that I have to remind myself because I'm in this world day to day trying to learn new things, trying to support my team who is doing this. Uh, And we're still like so early, like we're still really, really early and even if it isn't as hyped as it is, and maybe maybe the hype for serverless just goes down to zero as far as like a Google Trends sort of line, it goes down to a tenth of what it is right now. From the conversations that I'm seeing and having with like the clients that I'm working with or the uh, people on the business side, they're like, oh, this is valuable. We already have yeses to this. Like they're saying yes, it's popular to them. And that's like where it sort of really matters. Like being able to have the demand from like an average person, like a logistics company being like, oh, we should use serverless or like a furniture company being like, we want to use serverless. There's a lot more of those legacy industries that aren't purely tech focused that are going to be uh, interested. And like, that's also going to be, I think, a hidden area demand that's actually just going to keep increasing outside of the first three that you were talking about. Like, for example, you go into a sofa shop to order a sofa. You don't care if it doesn't order the sofa in milliseconds. You want to know that, you know, it's ordered it in a minute because what you're used to is a Windows form from 2000. And my perspective on what will we see to make the quantum leap for serverless is I think it's all a mixture of all of them. I think if we're talking about raw performance, we have to see that from a provider level, so either first or second. But if we really want to see integration, that's where the interesting side is. And I think that's between the frameworks and the provider is how down to a a T can they get it? I would love to get to a point where you could open a PR on your React branch and it builds the functions and the database required to test that whole PR inside this tiny environment that you can then chuck away. The industry is not quite there yet, but I think in a year or two, it will definitely be there. I think that we're going to see lots of innovation from layer one, layer two, and frameworks. But for me, as someone who watches these trends, if I had to place my bet on like what the actual like quantum leap is going to be, it's not going to come from any of those. It's going to come from new layer ones. This is what's going to actually change everything is that you're going to have Cloudflare, you're going to have Fastly, and you're going to have other clouds like that that are building serverless functions that are edge native. And so that's where you're going to be able to avoid all of this cold start stuff from the beginning and what's going to actually architect this stuff where you really don't need to think about that. But the question is, how do you then migrate your Lambda workloads to this new infrastructure because it's not going to directly port. So the technology will get there, but it won't be necessarily compatible with the old serverless technology. And that's going to be the really complicated thing we have to figure out. And then I'm also interested on that aspect to see like, well, what are the marginal benefits really going to be from like, okay, I'm shifting over from AWS to Fastly. And, you know, I think we all saw what happened at Fastly like last week or the week before things just like shut down. And so it's like when you are moving to someone niche in that sort of area, you know, there is like extra risks. And so it's like, what is the true, like the true benefit of those new layer ones really have to be good and they have to be able to still give the level of like the level of security and level of confidence that these legacy L1s are going to have because as far as like ultimate sizes of like market share like sure they may be more performant but like in order to really take that market share you have to uh, be able to play in the same ring which is going to be difficult but I definitely think it's possible I think there's enough people who are interested in something like that and just a side note with Fastly going down it was a user changing 
one of their config options. Obviously, they didn't say what user took down Amazon and half the internet, but it was a user changing a config session. If you think about it, everything runs on machines abstracted by nth degree. So you're serverless, there's still a server function runner underneath it that's then got a runner underneath that as like an OS runner. You know, it, it just goes all the way down. Somewhere in that huge stack is a person who can fat finger a database and drop it all. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Josh. This has been a really great conversation. We really appreciate your perspective as someone in the trenches working on this technology. Won't you let our listeners know where they can find you online or where they can get in contact with you? Yeah, yeah. So I have I have a Twitter that I use for all things serverless called Serverless Josh. On it, I think my profile picture is a is an iteration of myself with much shorter hair, but I promise it's me. I do wear the same beanie, and uh, you know I mentioned my my lovely pigeon Giovanni Pepperoni. I am a pigeon dad, so you can find me there. Also, uh, you can find uh, if you want to talk to me specifically more about serverless or talk to us about serverless. You know, serverlessguru.com will be more than happy. Like if you send an email, I think to the uh, contact form or the info email, like it will go to me and I will see it. Uh, I'll be one of the people on the chain. So, you know, mention that you see me on the podcast and if you want to talk more or get a virtual coffee, I'm always interested in talking about talking about serverless, talking about business and innovation. I think those are some of the most exciting things that always happen. And I think that, you know, we're always interested in collaborations as well as if you're, if you like building serverless applications, please ring us up because maybe there's an opportunity for us to work together. Awesome. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.